You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Come and show me the magic Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies What a scene Of your Hollywood song Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1982's The Complete Beatles. Complete. Compliat. Beatles. It's got a funny spelling. But uh, its place in Beatles fandom is locked in before the anthology series, before Get Back, uh, before some books probably. There was this much-loved documentary that, at the time, offered the most definitive encapsulation of the entire Beatles career and story, which is no mean feat, or fiat. Uh, given the entire film clocks in at just under two hours, which is probably where we should start, really, because as we've talked about lots in you know, in previous episodes, documentaries that try to do too much in a short runtime don't often fare very well. Uh, this is trying to cover absolutely everything in just two hours. So how well do you think it does? Uh, pretty well in general i think i mean it is obviously a big ask to cover the whole thing in two hours but also this this is sort of establishing the template of the beatles documentary um so we're both we were both watching it for the first time so obviously we've seen the anthology a lot um but we've watched them in in reverse chronological order obviously this was released uh 12 13 years before the anthology so the anthology is sort of I suppose is almost kind of taking its lead from the template that this established. So obviously it's a pretty faithful sort of chronological telling of the story with talking heads and clips interspersed. It has a narrator, which the anthology doesn't. Other than that, it's kind of treading the same ground, but treating it a bit differently and also crucially 
much quicker <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree I, I'm, I was quite surprised actually by how much it packs into two hours yeah um but still feels like it has a lot of space to breathe in certain areas like mm. there's there, there's a lot of time dedicated to certain songs and in many instances where it's talking about a song it'll play those songs almost in full and yeah. it's like you're, but, but but you've only got two hours, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like you could shave some of this time off. But, yeah, yeah. but it actually, it feels like it's really nicely paced in that respect. It gives. It's not just about the. It's not just about the the, the songwriting stories. It's not just about the drama that happens to the band. It's not just about the the songs themselves. Like it makes time for everything in in such a short space of time. And it also, I was quite pleased to see it. It covers everything that you'd expect a single Beatles documentary to cover in terms of the familiar stories that we, we feel like should be represented here. Like the anecdotes that George Martin tells in particular, like, you know, those kinds of things, those beats. It makes me wonder whether or not we are familiar with them now because they came from this documentary mm. originally or, or, or this film is where some of those stories were first popularised and actually a lot of documentaries since have taken that as its lead yeah 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 i mean all of these these anecdotes we know so well as sort of seasoned beetle documentary watchers must have started being told somewhere mm. you know it's sort of chick- chicken or the egg uh, scenario isn't it you know yeah. which came first the scrambled eggs anecdote or the <laughs> give me one with the chicken in it it's got to be one with the chicken. It's got to be, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, give me a second. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the it, but yeah, of, of course, like there, there must have been uh, a point at which uh, what we now think of as not necessarily hackneyed, but like sort of well-trodden paths of like the Beatle narrative uh, began. So, I mean, it will have been books. There had been books written already by this point. Um, mm. But also, the thing to bear in mind is that we're quite used to the idea of because obviously like it, it, it you know everyone makes beatles documentaries now because there is a market for them um and you can make beatle documentaries as people do about like quite small bits of their career and actually those tend to be the most interesting ones in my experience 1982 was a time when there was a bit of resurgence in popularity of the beatles post john's death but i think even sort of 3 years ago the audience for a documentary about the Beatles would have been a lot smaller. Mm. I don't know, people wouldn't have been thinking about it that much. Well, we talk about those in terms of, you know, where the Beatles are in their solo careers. Uh, and I, I could be wrong, but I guess, do we think three years prior to this film being released is around the time where actually the, the stars waned a lot in the sort of interest in the Beatles solo endeavours? Paul is probably still riding high of wings at this time. Yeah, I suppose so. So, I mean, uh, so late 70s, uh, Wings more or less exactly spanned the 70s and the same sure. as the Beatles spanned the 60s. So they're more or less done by 1980. But yeah, I think in terms of interest in their solo careers, but also interest in the Beatles uh, group music and in terms of like products and, you know, re-releases and things like that. The release of the Red and Blue albums in 1973, uh, I think there was a bit of a resurgence in interest or maybe just a reinvigorating of the interest that hadn't quite gone away. But I think from that point on, their popularity during the 70s had waned. I think it was pretty uncool to be a Beatles fan if you were a teenager in the 70s in general. And then post uh, John's death, that kind of 
reinvigorated a lot of interests. And also in 1982, you have it's the 20th anniversary of Love Me Do coming out. So there's there is like 20th anniversary product being made. Wow. Yeah. And, and there's an audience for it as well. It seems. Um, whereas, but you know, maybe a few years previously, that audience would have been harder to find. I think. It's um, it's a good thing that all of that those anniversary re-releases stopped there and then and didn't continue. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, the, with diminishing returns of success. <laughs> uh, I don't want to make out as if I haven't been listening to you for the last five minutes, but also when it comes to chicken puns and yeah. Beatles tracks, yep. uh, couldn't think of any other than why did the chicken cross the Abbey Road? Right. Um, and yeah. if you really want to reach. <laughs> Okay, compose myself. I um, was thinking about the uh, chicken Caesar salad of John and Yoko. Oh God! <laughs> right now we can continue. I, feel like I didn't want to leave that. I didn't want. I didn't want to leave without getting closure on the chicken and egg situation when it came to uh, Beatles puns. Yeah. Also, just wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that would have been so much simpler. Just gone with wings. Um, <laughs> going, going back to how well we think the the film fares in in covering everything i do think it does a brilliant job of of providing a full view of the entire 10 year sort of beatles career Mm. story and and it very much you know does that does that job from start to finish i i don't know the pacing's quite right yeah i I remember thinking it's the film is two hours long i remember thinking an hour into it we we, you know we haven't even got to sergeant pepper yet in fact i think at the halfway point they're still on rubber sole. I, t- I had it as like, I remember making the same note and thinking, oh, we're sort of late Beatlemania here. It's yeah, almost yeah. still 64, pretty much. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 64, exactly, yeah. Which, and so at that point, I'm thinking, there's, there's a lot to cover, <laughs> which I, I, mean, I guess it depends on your, your interest in the band, right? But for me, there's some of the, the juicier stuff to get into in the later period when they start becoming more artistically creative. Mm. But also, th- there's no reason to suggest that there should be more focus on that period than on the actual origins of the band. You know, that's it makes sense that you'd want to spend a long time on the origin story of, of the Beatles. And in fact, there's a really interesting um, bit at the start where, you know, the film talks about uh, each of the band members. I guess childhood. It starts with John and his interest in him getting into a band, and then um, it introduces Paul. <laughs> and I think he's fourteen at the time. I think the film mentions, but it introduces a picture of a young Paul, and it says Paul McCartney had never met John Lennon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was like, well, obviously, <laughs> yeah. presumably, you are now about to tell us when he does, though. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, yeah, an, yeah. it's an odd thing to introduce at that point. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he'd never met John Lennon. <laughs> Until he did. <laughs> You're right. That is an odd way to phrase that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, so I guess, you know, if you're looking at where you want to place emphasis in the film, maybe it does make sense that you spend a significant chunk of time on the pre-fame part of their mm. story. And there is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I just think that it does mean that the, the later years get short shrift as a result. Yeah. I think this is a documentary that is led quite a lot by the input of its talking heads. Mm. And what you notice is that it's quite heavy on like useful talking heads who were around at the time in the early days. So you've got Bill Harry, you've got 
Alan Williams, which is who you know, it's great to have him on. You don't you know because you know he's no, no longer with us, but also because you don't have an awful lot of testimony from Alan Williams in general, or at least like you don't really see him in documentaries you know, mm. all that much. You know, uh, you've got Bob Wooler, who's the DJ at the Cavern, and you've got Billy J. Kramer, um, who looks mm. amazing, by the way. Like that guy with like he's got like. That hair that like Roy of the Rovers had in like the nineteen eighties, <laughs> just that, that sort of classic. It's not quite a perm, but it's just coming over the ears. Yeah, and it's just oh, you look amazing. And I suppose at this point he's what getting on for forty, that kind of thing. But mm. he's really, really aging well, and good for him. You know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, like uh, in, in in terms of people who are around in the early days and in Hamburg and stuff like that, uh, Jerry Marsden is another one. It's quite heavy on that, so it makes good use of that. Uh, when it gets into the later years. It, it's very heavily led by George Martin. Yes. Uh, which is great. And what, and what he talks about is really interesting, but it's not particularly heavy on other people who were around in the time. Of the, of the and I guess years. that makes sense because I guess as they become more famous, obviously their, their circle is getting smaller and also consists of other famous people. Yeah. Right. So a documentary like this probably has, you know, has to rely on access and yeah. it's only, you know, you're not necessarily going to get. Uh, Eric Clapton on a you know documentary like this every time. Yeah, yeah. So you know you've got Marianne Faithful, and she sort of ta- who was mm. who was obviously around and knew them and hung around with them uh, at the time. But um, yeah, and she talks about how Paul turned up at a party with the acetate for Hey Jude and played it. You know? mm. So you know that's a thing where she can say, "Well, I was there. This specific thing happened." But in general, it's not like she was in the studio all yeah. the time and in the meetings at Apple and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It makes you realise how valuable it is. You know, we've said before, uh, when you have a documentary that has, for example, Yoko in it, uh, how valuable that is because that is someone who is in the room with them in yeah. that time and, and those people are few in number. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed uh, about the film I think it did a very, very good job with is being very succinct and concise in in contextualising the Beatles story. So it, it very quickly sets out the musical influences that paved the way for the band making the music that they made. But there's also, um, when the film talks about John's upbringing, there was a phrase that it says where, um, you know, he was raised by his aunt Mimi and his relationship with his mum, Julia, was that of her being much more like an affectionate friend. Yes. And that's it. When he was six, John's father disappeared on a merchant ship. John was left in the care of his Aunt Mimi. His free-spirited mother, Julia, became more like an affectionate friend. That's actually, in terms of, like, editorialising and, and editing the story, actually, that does a very good job of, of just providing enough information about that story without having to spend a great amount of effort unpacking a lot of that. Because, you know, there's a lot more story there to be told, but actually... I found that all the way through to actually just sort of succinctly telling sort of elements of the story. Uh, it, it did really well without having to uh, over embellish any particular detail. Yeah, that's, that's a good example. Cause I think if you think about how the anthology approaches that anthology, like gives you a bit more about uh, that his dad left and went off to sea. And then, you know, he's raised by an aunt and then his mother was killed but also doesn't really get into the whole thing of like, uh, 
O'Lennon was a man beset by demons from his childhood and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. And so th- this doesn't either, but it literally just says like, oh yeah, there was uh, mainly raised by an aunt, but his mother was around as well. It's, it's kind of the end of that, you know, which is it's quite refreshing in a way that it's not taking you down this road of like, that John was a tortured genius. Kind yes. Of thing, you know. And I, I just think I, I kind of appreciated that the film seemed to know where to pull its punches. You know, yeah. like, you know, on the whole, when there is so much to explore, I think it probably got the balance right in uh, where to focus a lot of attention and, and where to pull back. Uh, but, but that said, I think, you know, it's, uh, I think any Beatles fan who knows the story inside out is probably going to be left wondering about certain omissions. I'm pretty sure that there's no mention of Cynthia in the film, which seems like quite a glaring omission. Yeah, yeah, true. And and just things like, you know, uh, extra context, some things, like the, the, the film goes into great detail with the band suddenly producing Strawberry Fields mm. and and the music video that accompanies that and the circumstances that surround that. But there's no mention of John appearing in a movie and, you know, yeah. the, the circumstances around in which he wrote that song. Yeah. You know, so I there's a part of me that wonders if at two hours, it does a brilliant job of concisely covering everything that you'd want in a two-hour film. I wonder how much more it could have achieved if it just had an extra half hour. Yeah, definitely. Um, so bear in mind, this was a VHS release. So uh, that was its sort of original release, I think in uh, October 1982, two-hour VHS release. So if you're putting it on VHS, you're sort of up against... Actually, no, I'm saying that, but I'm thinking back to when I had VHSs. I had films like The Green Mile on VHS. That's like three hours long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can fit. You can, yeah, <laughs> you, easily. Yeah, you yeah. can fit more on a VHS than that. But I suppose, yeah, as, but uh, they're also going for TV releases as well, right? And they yes. want to be able to show it in one evening as opposed to in a series, I suppose. So I, I think, and you know, it's, it's, we should mention that the film was made for TV. There's a background to this film where it was released to coincide with the publication of sheet music that was released at the time. And then this documentary ended up becoming as popular, if not more so, uh, than the book that it was designed to promote. But as a result of that, it got a limited theatrical release as well. And I think at this time, there's, you know, in 1982, there's probably restrictions around the the appetite for cinema goes to see a film that's longer than two hours yes but yeah i think you know they would have been by that point at least reasonably confident that cinema goes would be interested in seeing a two-hour film about the beatles you know so like, it, it, as i mentioned earlier like this is uh there's quite a lot of beatles products coming out in 1982 and there seems to be a sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't, don't know if I'd call it a second wave of Beatlemania, but it is, um, like I say, there's the anniversary stuff going on and they're sort of in the public consciousness. So there are like re-releases of things. So like, A Hard Day's Night film is uh, re-released. There's a re-release of uh, Love Me Do, like uh, like two versions, one with Ringo and one with Andy White. Uh, there are some compilation albums coming out. There's one called Like Dreamers Do, which is a triple album. Uh, there is, uh, Radio One do a show called The Beatles at the Beeb, which is, uh, sort of 20th anniversary of their first radio appearance. Mm. Uh, there is a compilation album of their, uh, music from films called Real Music. 
which has a single of uh, do you want to know a secret that's released to go alongside it so you know if they, and there's a Beatles movie medley uh, that gets to number 10 in the charts in uh, in July so you know this it, that's a lot for it, one year isn't it it, it is a lot yeah, yeah for um, so like now it's quite commonplace for these things to be marked with anniversaries mm. uh, I think I'm not sure in 1972 anyone was doing this mm. um, I mean that was probably still bit, quite raw right yeah a bit yeah. too soon and also the the, the template for like uh, I suppose it's like um, you, you can't really be nostalgic about something that finished two years ago I suppose yes. you know? but yeah. then, I mean having said that you know the Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane's are sort of Penny Lane are nostalgic songs about a childhood that would, that ended about four years ago or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, 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 I think there is a, a public appetite for this stuff. Um, and it's probably 1982 is the period that kind of sets the tone, if you like, for how the Beatles are going to be consumed commercially as a sort of legacy act. Mm. From that point onwards, in terms, of, so like Apple certainly haven't got into the swing of things at this point about being canny about re-releasing things and repackaging things and remasters and stuff like that. That all happens quite a lot later. Yeah, but it is sort of start. People are starting to realize, oh, there's still money in this thing. Actually, you know? yeah, yeah, still money in this thing, but also, I guess that's a reaction to the interest. Yeah. So obviously, all of that is sparked by John Lennon's assassination. Yeah. Yeah, obviously the industry is a money-making machine, but that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a sudden sparked interest in the work itself. Yeah. And it's interesting that it might be John's death that led to a lot of his interest, but actually it's people rediscovering that this stuff was great. Yeah. You know, it's not just a nostalgia trip. It's actually this deserves re-evaluation and, uh, and reappraisal for exactly how brilliant it was i guess it might be the first time in which uh, we think now of the beatles as the greatest band of all time it might be the first time where there was enough distance from the band for that kind of claim to be yeah. made yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know which yeah. is great in a way like that so that's you know the i think we've grown up in a period where we've always just assumed that was the case and everyone's mm. known that but actually you're you're probably right in the, in the 70s people were too close to it then and yeah. actually it had to take 10 years distance to to then realize exactly how revered the Beatles deserve to be yeah and, and actually you look at the way that it treats Sergeant Pepper for example it is talking about it it, it gives Sergeant Pepper a lot of attention in the documentary so partly this as we said will be down to George Martin being a sort of key talking head and able to talk at length about this, all the sort of various studio, you know, machinations now that they were sort of off tour. But if you look at the way it's talking about Sergeant Pepper, it, it's with a, a reverence that you get now, but I'm not sure when the sort of narrative about Sergeant Pepper being an incredible breakthrough began. But yeah. You, but you think about this in so 1982, this is what, 15 years since Sergeant Pepper was released and they're talking about it in those terms. And actually, you know, I was thinking... So where are we now? 2023. So what was the equivalent of like talking about an album that came out in 2008? I mean, name name an album that came out. I mean, name anything that I, happened in 2008. Right? I only know albums that came out in the 90s. I don't know. <laughs> 2008 is too recent for no, me. No, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I think maybe it is with that sort of 
a bit of distance. Maybe, you know, 15 years is the sort of, you know, official, unofficial statute of limitations on, um, you know, when you can start talking about something as being the best thing of all time or yeah. revolutionary in some way, you know, that kind of thing. Which means I've got high hopes for this podcast in 15 years' time. <laughs> yeah, that's when it's really going to kick in in, t- in terms of the numbers, you know. Um but yeah, it's interesting because I think that we know that Sgt. Peppers was a massive event release at the time mm. upon release. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that's obviously different to people understanding and talking about it as being the greatest album of all time, which yes. would have come much later. But what is referenced in this film that sort of helps bridge the gap a little bit is, um, uh, someone mentions that when Sgt. Pepper came out, I, I think I think the inference is sort of creative type people, people interested in music at the time, locked themselves away and just listened to that album for weeks. Yeah. And just listened and talked to each other about it. And, you know, almost in the way that sort of a, a viral hit would happen in real terms, mm. you, know, you know, or, you know, or, or play out in real time yeah. without the aid of social media. And I think that was quite interesting. That was quite a nice thought that, that actually this had such a big impact at the time. Whether or not people recognised its importance in pop music history as a whole, this idea that it was so impactful that people would lock, lock themselves away and just listen to it on repeat and discover new things and, and discuss it. And, yeah. you know, there was a real, you know, a water cooler album for weeks. It's yeah. quite a nice, nice thought. Yeah, it must have been sort of the first time that happened as well. Yeah. In the, I mean, you know, what you always hear about Sgt. Pepper is like, this was the first time that an album, uh, the album had been treated as an art form in itself. I think it was the first one that, or maybe Revolver was, I'm not sure, but maybe the first one where the track listing was the same everywhere it was released. Mm. It, it wasn't, they didn't have like an American version. Yes. Because yes, Rob, Rob Soul yeah. certainly did have an American version. I'm not so sure about Revolver. So I could be wrong. But, um, yes. But, it, but it, was, it was around that time they were sort of starting to think of the album as an entity as opposed to a collection of songs to be sold. I, I have a feeling that Revolver did have a different track order. Right. But I can't remember what it was. Right. Uh, but I do think, but, and also, you know, when it comes to Sgt. obviously there were all the other factors that came with it like it was the you know first album that came with printed lyrics and yeah. and all of that stuff that helped contribute to people being a bit more engaged with the uh, the release itself yeah one last note i wanted to mention on the the pacing of the film i think it's really interesting where some of the elements of the beatles story get covered very very quickly yeah, I think Magical Mystery Tour probably flies by mm. without much mention. There's, there's no mention at all of I Am The Walrus, and I think we probably consider that to be quite a important song in the overall Beatles catalogue yeah. for uh, for what it meant in terms of a sort of creative choice. But also, like, Rishikesh, like, the entire trip to Rishikesh happens in the spa- this, uh, space of about 20 seconds. Like, they're, they're yeah. pretty much catching each other on the way out as they're going in, um, in terms of how it's talked about in this documentary. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 even, you, you could argue, I mean, not that it's sort of skipped over, but things like Rishikesh and therefore the White Album are uh, just talked about in quite odd terms. So the White Album is described as it erratic uh, or, or it's a, I think it says like 
critics said it was erratic. Why don't we do it in the road? The strain showed in their two record set, which the public called the White Album. While it automatically became a gold record, critics complained that it was erratic and disorganized. This is the point yeah. in the documentary where the narrative is oh, the cracks were beginning to show. And they're yeah. kind of saying that is from about 68 onwards. And, you know, they're, they're not enjoying each other's company and they're not enjoying the recording process and so on. And they say that the White, critics said that the White Album was erratic and they realised this themselves, um, you know, and it's sort of painting this narrative of, uh, of the rot has set in. I guess that it helps that narrative along by sort of uh, it, mentioning the Maharishi thing but also saying, and uh, then they came home uh, sort of suggesting the whole, uh, you know, him uh, being inappropriate with Mia Farrow thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes a joke about, oh, and also Ringo didn't like the food. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, it, it's sort of, it's using that to sort of further this idea that this this is, it's almost like a, it's trying to go for this three-act structure sort of yeah. thing. And also, by the way, it's, it's probably quite true, a that at the time uh, it was generally thought that the White Album was um, that was where the cracks were beginning to show because that, that is still being discussed in the anthology in general that you know mm. we, oh, we weren't like we were quite separate and we weren't acting as a group that kind of thing and also that might be true to some degree and George Martin backs that up I think I think you know he talks about uh, those songs being recorded in a way that was. The songs were very much like they weren't working together as a unit, and the songwriter would almost bring in the rest of the band as hired musicians yes. to to play on those songs that they'd written. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but he supports that narrative. I think at that point, but I also wonder how much of that is informed solely by what George Martin is saying there. Yeah, and that and that's the interesting thing because George Martin is is. His contribution to this is really interesting. So he's in this period, sort of 1982, I think, where he's got his Montserrat studio set up and he is tanned and extremely handsome. <laughs> um, and um, and obviously, like, in a good place in his life. George Martin's always been happy to talk about the Beatles and he he has never been one to particularly blow his own trumpet. But I feel like in this documentary... He is doing that a bit more than usual, or at least the documentary seems to be led by the extent of his contribution to elevate his role yes, um, yeah. quite a lot. His role was undoubtedly incredibly important in, in, the, in the Beatles, but he makes a claim of, which, which may be down to him misremembering because it's 20 years ago, but he makes a claim of, there, there is this thing of when they came in because they weren't, groups where there wasn't a leader or a, a specific lead singer weren't particularly a thing at mm. the time. The Beatles were quite novel in that regard. So uh, George says something along the lines of, we're trying to figure out, you know, should should John be the leader or should Paul be the leader? He actually and, says something along the lines of, like, he was trying to work out who sings best, I think. Is what he said, right. Or something along those lines. But he also, like just slips in a like a, a an accidental dig at George because he right. says like you know is it is it Paul is it John 
George, but he couldn't sing as well. And like he's yeah, saying, like yeah, really yeah. almost like offhand, but it's like it was quite <laughs> quite cutting because no, I think George's true. voice in, is, is great at that time. Like, yeah, absolutely. The three of them had amazing voices, so it was, it was a strange sort of throwaway comment to make. Yeah, I seem to remember that uh, reading once that there was something maybe in like the Decker auditions that whoever I don't know whether it was Dick Rowe who you know uh, to whether how true that is or not that he turned them down but the guy who's thought of as turning down the Beatles him or someone in the Decca auditions thought of George as being the most likely lead singer right but that is something that I read years and years ago and I can't remember where so like I may have even yeah, yeah. dreamed it who knows <laughs> citation needed uh, citation needed anyway um but George Martin is saying in this documentary uh, you know I was wondering who is going to be the lead singer and then it hit me we don't need one they can just be a group I've got them to sing lots of different things to find out which voice was good I was looking for the Cliff Richard or the Elvis Presley or the Tommy Steele saying now is Paul going to be the main one or is John going to be the main one and George well he's obviously not got such a good voice as the other two and then it suddenly hit me right between the eyes why the hell should I find the solo singer why not just have a lot of them as they are and it seemed to me that he was sort of uh, taking responsibility for sort of almost coming up with the idea that oh no they can just be a group they, yeah. they don't need a leader they can be a new thing and I, I, mean, I don't think it particularly went that way I think the Beatles just presented themselves to him as a group uh, it's certainly true that someone, George Martin, as an A&R at the time, it would have been his responsibility to make decisions like that. Who's going to be the lead singer? I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you'd expect, I mean, certainly now, that decision would be Brian's, right? In yeah. terms of deciding what the band's image should be and how they should be marketed, mm. that that would be a manager's yeah. job. Yeah. I think I guess in conjunction with the record label, so I guess there's there's you know part and parcel. But I I find it interesting now that what you're saying there is that it would actually be more likely to be George Martin who would decide that kind of thing, which would be fundamental reshaping of the band based on yeah. his opinion in, in in the moment. Yeah, but like specifically as recording artists, so yeah. like his his job there would have been to get the best recordings out of them mm. so he he was apparently thinking well paul probably has the best voice for recording mm. and like the, the way he says it in this documentary as he has in the anthology and i'm sure in other places um with the pete best thing um he said um i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna hire another drummer to play on the records if if you want him to when you play live that's fine it's nothing to do with me right okay but because his only responsibility is like how do i record this band best yeah, yeah. and he also would have been responsible for choosing songs as yeah. well uh which you know why he was sort of wanting them to do how do you do it yeah but because of the sort of publishing deal that was sort of being struck up with i think they called Ard- Ardwood and Beachmore um mm. and and part of them being signed to EMI was that they was that these guys would also get the publishing he was more or less obliged to have at least one Lennon McCartney song. That, right. that this was part of it. So while he wanted them to do how how do you do it, he did need to because he does talk about um, you know, L- Love Me Do was sort of of the ones they gave me the best to yes. start off with. Yeah. But you can tell he wasn't enthusiastic about Love Me Do. I always find it really interesting because I think it's come up a couple of times when George Martin talks about that part of it. And he's he's always very quick to downplay anything else that the band had at that time yeah it's like well they played me some you know the 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 idea is they play me a bunch of songs and love me do is really the best that they had yeah 
And it's like, well, you know, what else was there? I think, yeah. you know, what, are there, are there lost Lennon McCartney gems because you turned around and said, no, this isn't good enough? And you were probably yeah. right, but, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, I just find it really interesting. He talks about very, whenever he mentions that, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't talk about that period in the same way that you might expect someone to be like, uh, they played me loads of songs and they were all absolutely brilliant and they blew me away because mm. it's the Beatles and of course they were. He's always quite, frank about you know yeah not thinking that a lot of their stuff wasn't up to scratch at the time yeah it's interesting you know he he does he expands on that a bit more in the anthology i think where he sort of talks about how you know they they, obviously they developed very quickly as songwriters but at the time they weren't quite there Mm. actually one of the things he usually uh the story of like how please please me was originally quite a slow roy orbison type song Mm. Uh, usually the story is george martin suggested you should speed this up and then they did, and then it was, gentlemen, you've got your first number one. In this, he says, um, oh, like, I'd heard it before, and then they brought it to me, sped up, and it was much better. Yeah. Martin wanted them to record a tune written by a professional songwriter called How Do You Do It? They said, look, we'd rather do our own song. I said, well, give me a song that's as good as that, and I'll, I'll do it. And they came up with Please Please Me re- refurbished. They'd, they'd speeded it up. So, so, you know, th- this is why I, and I think you know, we in general, are, are really careful not to accuse people of just sort of like making things up to in documentaries to to bolster their own reputation. And I don't think George Martin does that. Because, and it's interesting that it, this is an occasion where he seems to be like downplaying his role in something that I, I previously just thought was accepted fact, that it was his suggestion, please, please, we should be sped up. And actually, it just illustrates that so much of what people say in documentaries, they don't have an agenda necessarily. In fact, they, they very rarely have an agenda. It, it's just that memory is is a faulty thing. Yes, <laughs> in yeah, general. yeah. I mean, I mean, some people do have agendas, and certainly we've spoken before about whether they're doing it consciously or not. People have a tendency to just put themselves at the centre of stories. So Alan Williams does that in this documentary. Certainly, he talks about he makes sort of makes out that he. He auditioned Pete Best himself. Mm. You know, I said, okay, "Come on, play a drum roll for me." And I said, "Okay, well, you know, he, you know." And I was thinking, "Well, he's not the best drummer, but he'll have to do." And actually, I think Pete Best's memory of that audition is that the whole band were there except maybe George wasn't. But uh, but it, it wasn't just Alan Williams, you yeah, know, yeah, auditioning him in a room. But there is that thing of like, "Oh, I suggested this to the boys." Now the Beatles were going through one of their drummerless periods. They had been playing at the Cashbar Club run by Mrs. Best, whose son was Pete Best, who played drums. And so they introduced me to Pete, and I said, OK, play me a drum roll, let's see how good you are. And he played, not too cleverly, but passable. And I said, OK, that's good enough. Now let's go to Hamburg. But we saw it before, I think, when we did our episode on the arena documentary about george martin uh yes that he is at all times very very humble and modest about his own contributions and he will reel off something that he did do and and seems like a significant contribution to a song as if it was just like well that was my job you know like he does he has that sort of sense about him you know he's very he's just he's very very dry Mm. uh and i don't mean dry humored i mean very very dry in the way he like everything is delivered in a matter of fact tone mm. like you're you're talking about the greatest band of all time 
and your personal contributions to some of the songs that have become the best loved and most popular songs ever. Yeah. And he'll talk about it like he's reading the shipping forecast. You know, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very dry, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But it, like I said, there, there is a, there is a focus on Sergeant Pepper uh, in this, and so one of the things, despite the two-hour runtime, we get the story about being for the benefit of Mister Kite, uh, and you know George's role in this. You know, is 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 John saying, um, "Oh, I want it to sound like a like a Victorian fairground, and I want to." hear the sawdust on the floor and or, or whatever it is. And so I said, oh, okay, John, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so like we get that story about how he, how he did that, mm. which is, is a story we all know quite well now. Again, it might be one that we didn't know very well at the time before this documentary came out. But it, in a film of this length, it, do we need to spend three minutes on being for the benefit of Mr. Kite? You know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I thought that was an odd choice. I think there is a little bit of that throughout the film where it's, it seems like there's an odd amount of time spent on songs that you wouldn't expect to be yeah. the case. And there's no, in, in the version of this film that we saw, there's no mention at all of A Day in the Life. Um, I did find reference to a review of the time that spoke about a section regarding A Day in the Life, which implies that there was more of that George Martin interview where he talked about the song that that was included in the cinematic release but yeah. has been cut since. Uh but but yeah on the whole like for for all of the songs on Sgt. Pepper to spend that much time on it was it's, it's strange. And and I'm a bit torn because I quite like the idea that you can choose any song in the Beatles catalogue and probably find some interesting things to say about it because that's just kind of the band they were. Yeah. And and I always wonder if I'd be a little bit more disappointed in the film if it only chose to focus on the greatest hits of the band. But but also it goes back to that point of you could probably shave some time off here. Like one of the one of the things I really enjoyed was towards uh, I say towards the end, you know, in the latter half of the film, uh, they cover Hey Jude, yeah, and the narration says, you know, Hey Jude came out, and it was nearly seven minutes long, and uh, it was so long that most radio stations would never play a song that that's long before, but because obviously it's the Beatles, they played it even though it's very long. And then it goes on to play almost a song as in in its entirety. And it's like you just explained that this is a super long song that you could you could probably cut off before you go to all the nananas, you know. <laughs> and and then maybe throw in a mention of Cynthia, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> as a result, as a trade-off, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's interesting, those choices that are made. But also, at the same time, I kind of like that the film gives itself the space to do that kind of stuff, because what else should the film be about if it's not about the music, you know? Yeah, I think um, there is live footage as well that I think later turns up colorized in the Ron Howard documentary, Eight Days a Week, from 2016. Uh, which I, I presume up until that point, which uh, I think maybe it's in Washington DC. I could be wrong, but it's the one where Ringo's drum riser is on a like they have to keep on turning him around yes. to, yeah, yeah, to yeah, face the, the other side. I think maybe that's Washington DC. But w- what they do with that is they show uh, them playing sort of two songs in a row, more or less uncut, like the mm. entire thing. Um, I think you know this one where they're playing "She Loves You," and actually there is camera work in there where they are focusing you know, just on Ringo playing drums for like a good sort of 20, 25 seconds or something yeah, yeah. like that. And actually I was thinking, oh, you don't, you don't, 
usually see this, you know, just yeah. uh, them presented in this way, whereas like a focus on just one of them throughout a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was really valuable for that. I, I wasn't expecting it at all. So it's it, it's an odd... The breathing space is a good phrase to use, you know, because it's it, it, cause it's, it, it's it's an odd way to focus on things, to, to really, really skip over some things and then uh, just kind of like luxuriate a bit in in others where you don't mm. expect it to. It's an approach I really enjoyed, actually. Yeah, you know? I completely agree. Yeah. Luxuriate, is, uh, is, again, is a, is a good phrase while we're complimenting each other on oh, our phrases. You. Oh, thank you very much. Um, because, uh, <laughs> uh, because there should be room for it. I, I think I wouldn't... I, I think the film has two jobs one which is to be informative about uh its subject and also to be entertaining in its own right and i don't think the film would be anywhere near as entertaining if it just rattled through you know week by week what the band did yeah, yeah. right so so allowing time for that even if it comes at a compromise in other ways i think just helps the uh experience become so much more enjoyable yeah yeah Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We should probably talk about the film's main driving feature, which is the, the, the narration, narrated by Malcolm McDowell. Yep. Who I think has a brilliantly sort of commanding voice for this type of work in a yeah. film. It does make me think that uh, he's delivering it in a sort of evil genius kind of way. You know, like <laughs> there's a, there's just something about Malcolm McDowell anyway. Like he, he never played a Bond villain, but like it's that kind of clipped british uh, approach that he has to his voiceover that makes it seem quite harsh and there's some things that he says that because it's been written that way it seems unnecessarily harsh <laughs> in december independently of one another djs across the country began playing imported copies of i want to hold your hand by february sales of the single had climbed to 1.5 million before even setting foot on american soil the Beatles were the country's number one group. Like the film starts with this description of Liverpool in the fifties has been a very sort of dreary uh, town, yeah. and I even wrote this down because I was like, "This is <laughs> this is really not a nice picture." It's painting. Uh, it says uh, of Liverpool, the city droned on wearily in post-war Britain a nation triumphant in its nostalgic past, threadbare and tired in its present. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, okay, when do we start getting onto the rock and roll? <laughs> it's very, painting a, 
a depressing picture. But yeah, there's a he he played a um, talking about a Bond villain. He played a baddie in Star Trek Generations. I think his name was the character's name was Soren. Yeah. I couldn't get it out of my head that it's Malcolm Adele in villain mode. <laughs> right in in that. I, so I haven't seen that that Star Trek Generations, but I. I'm guessing he did it in a sort of fairly sort of cod Shakespearean way. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. That. That's I, I can imagine yeah. what you mean because actually, like it, it remind the fact that he was narrating it, the fact that there's a recognisable and sort of very reputable British like actor. Yes, doing the narration, like it reminded me of uh, like the, the, the World at War. You know that documentary series 1973 where Laurence Olivier is doing the narration for the British. Burma was a shield and barrier protecting their Indian empire. The Japanese saw they could use Burma to screen their new territorial gains in Southeast Asia, to cut the Allied supply route to China, and to secure new sources of oil and rice. In December 1941, they invaded. They had the advantage of surprise, and for this jungle war, they were thoroughly prepared. And 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 you're given the impression, so you know who's doing the narration. Like it, it's obvious. Like yeah. it, it's not supposed to be a thing where you get to the end and you go, "Oh, was oh, that Malcolm Adele? Yeah. Oh, okay." You know, the the idea is that you that you know who it is, and I suppose there's an association almost with this is an important part of British history. Yes, you know, this you know, and it, and it is being given some gravitas, certainly. You know. it, but I, I I guess the. The question I'm left with is, you're right, it, it lends the film gravitas, but does it lighten up when it might need to as well? And I don't know if it does, honestly. It's not a criticism, I don't think, because I, I, on the whole, it didn't bother me at all. But but I think the the film is, the film presents itself in quite a serious manner. Yeah. When actually, there's a lot in the film that is joyous. Yeah. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if the the joy comes through at the times when you'd expect it to. No, that's true. I, I think that the uh, so especially around the time when they stopped touring. Yes, uh, he I've, says I've got a note about this, but it's probably the same one that you've written down. <laughs> <laughs> so he says uh, the girls still screamed, but the excitement was gone. Yeah, uh, and, and just before that, you've had one way it really illustrates the, sort of the end of the touring years uh, in a way I hadn't actually seen done before was you get them playing if i needed someone on stage and i think it's japan mm-hmm. and it's a really good example of like the energy has gone out of their live performance because mm. these are songs these are studio songs really that are that they because they're just guitar bass and drums so they can recreate them on stage yeah but they're not really generating excitement in the audience if i had some more time to spend I can't remember for what film we spoke about this before, but the point had been made in something else, and I remember commenting in in, in our episode that I'd never heard that argument made before. And it's a really interesting one. Yeah. Like I, I've, I've heard the argument made that they didn't want to tour anymore, and they wanted to focus on stu- you know being in the studio and making the most out of their recordings. But actually, 
this idea of the more introspective they became when they were writing actually lent itself to a you know a less energetic live experience yeah which yeah. is why i always find it quite interesting now when um i, I don't I, i'm not too familiar with the 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 live recordings uh, and the set lists associated with those live recordings but when i have seen them i'm sure i'm always quite surprised to find some of the older classic numbers in there like the mm. proper rock and roll things the ones that they've done at the cavern club sometimes yeah, yeah. still pop up yeah, and you kind of think well of course they would because that's in their mind what a live experience should be yeah yeah they're still closing with long tall sally yes pretty, pretty much without exactly. fail always closing with long tall sally. yeah or like maybe like maybe like i'm down towards the end or something like that you know but a big rocker yeah, yeah. um but yeah and, and i guess it's more acceptable now that you would go and see a band live and be fully prepared that it might not be a you know a, a dance fest and yeah there'd be peaks know. and troughs in a show whereas, yeah, exactly. whereas they were playing a 20 20 or 25 minute set in general yes yeah so true, yeah. they they were just getting out there and also you know Bring out the numbers. Everyone, everyone was screaming nobody could really hear them anyway and you know as Ringo said later on like you know I felt that people came to see us not to hear us yeah but it's like going on to see a like Radiohead <laughs> and expecting them to close their set with Long Tall Sally. <laughs> I guess, you know, the, you know, you expect the, the idea of what a live experience should be has changed, I guess, from there. Yeah. I, th- I think ar- at, around that point in the documentary where they're talking about the transition from touring to studio, um, which again might not have been widely discussed at this point, certainly not in a documentary, um, uh, uh, right now that is like one of the more well like everyone knows that about the Beatles really that at some point they stopped touring and then they became studio people yeah. and that was where that was supposedly where the real creativity started which is you know not not true and too simplistic but in general that's that's the narrative but there, there is at this point in the documentary just a really good unpacking of that by George Martin and and there's like some real sort of emotional intelligence he displays where he's talking about um, how no one else in the world knew what it was like other than them. They had no life at all, just the four of them, and no one knows what kind of a life it was except those four themselves. Not even Brian or I knew really all the problems they had to go through when they were on tour. He, I don't think he's saying, oh, I could tell at the time. I think he's just saying, look, like this, you know, this is something I've thought about since or something sure. like that, you know. And it, that is set against some really remarkable footage that I'd never seen before of them getting to some airport in a storm and being outside and uh, having to... St- they get put on a, a sort of float and they're standing there with umbrellas yeah. and the umbrellas are going all over the place. And it's obviously like quite dangerous. Yeah. And they just shouldn't be there, but they are obliged to be there. It's, it's interesting because uh, that's the note that I made. Because right. uh, going back to this idea of the, the the documentary on the whole having a bit more of a solemn tone than you might expect. Mm. What actually, what Malcolm McDowell says at that time is touring had become intolerable. Yeah. And he says that over footage of, I guess, security or, you know, police wearing gigantic waterproof ponchos in this ridiculous storm yeah. and the footage is black and white and when i first saw that and mcmondale says touring had become intolerable it looks like it's been said over like world war one footage <laughs> like it's really 
dark yeah. like it's very grim um yeah yeah and obviously it's it's done that way deliberately to to show that these these could be the conditions that the beatles had to go through every now and then that, that you know you might not expect yeah it, it, but i think it's, it's really good illustration of how uh how quickly and how wholly they were commercialized co- and commodified because whichever airport that was i don't know where it was but essentially that would have been the beatles are coming into town everyone has come to see them at the airport because it's a thing now that you come and see the Beatles at the airport when they come in, everyone knows when it's going to happen. You stand there and scream and they wave and, you know, and everyone goes home happy. And this is when it's going to happen. Oh, it turns out there's an enormous storm and it's actually quite dangerous, but, but no one's going to say, Oh, sorry, we can't do this. It's too dangerous. Yeah. Because I mean, they also talked, I don't think in this documentary, but in others, about sort of being on stage somewhere in America in a storm where like like the danger of them getting electrocuted by the gear was quite high because obviously they didn't really have the safeguards or nothing like the kind of safeguards that you would have now for like, you know, uh, some kind of contingency plan if it rains. It was just, just go on and do the gig, you know? Mm, Yeah. And, you know, they they were sort of, you know, I'm not going to say they were sort of putting their lives on the line all the time or anything. It's a bit sort of overdramatic. But I mean, this idea of like, this this whole thing that hadn't existed at all for four years previously, not really, and all of a sudden it's become commodified to such an extent that that they're now obliged to sort of put themselves at risk in order to satisfy uh, the fact that people are expecting you to go out there and wave. Yeah. So you need to do it. Yeah. yeah. But, but and also, not much to gain from a lot a lot to lose in that. Yeah. arrangement in that agreement but and not much to gain as evidence in this film where you have reporters talking to some of the girls that have waited and are upset because yeah. they're like i've been queuing here since five o'clock this morning yeah. and they didn't even look my look at me yeah. or wave i would have liked them a lot i really would have loved them if they just waved to us or something but they didn't even look at us we came here we came here at six o'clock in the morning five thirty to see them and all they do is put your father far away and then they don't even let you see them then you're since yes i haven't seen i don't think i've seen that before but it does highlight that side of things i think we often think about Beatlemania as girls screaming and you know greeting the band and uh the the group uh being faced with these hordes of fans I, you don't often hear the other side of it, which is the fans not getting full satisfaction from that experience themselves. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, I think there is also more than in other Beatle documentaries. Actually, Eight Days a Week did have a fair amount of this, but uh, this has more than usual of uh, like interviews with American fans where you, you do see it a lot where, you know, it, there's girls standing in the street and they get a microphone in the face. Uh, who's, who's your favourite? Oh, I love Paul. I love Ringo, etc. But this has... Uh, there's one with a girl who has, like, painted a picture of yes. Paul. Yeah. Um, and she talks about her artistic inspiration, why she has painted this picture of Paul and what it's supposed to signify, and oh, I hope I get to give it to him and stuff. And the name of it is A Sprout of a New Generation. It shows Paul McCartney coming up from the earth like grown a sprout a start a new dawn you see the Beatles are the original they started the look everything and they are the greatest group out and here is see if you notice he's like growing and and I like the oil paint and I love to present his paint in the pool 
and I love him to have it, and I love to meet him. And that is really, really wonderful and lovely. Uh, you, you also get later on a police officer in Minneapolis talking about how someone in the Beatles entourage was rude to him mm. and you know one of them says I will never come back to Minneapolis and you know and I say oh well you know like oh if, if you do it'll be too soon or something like yeah, that right, yeah and all that stuff that's obviously at the point where they're illustrating that the touring thing is turning sour yeah post the bigger than Jesus thing but but also it it just adds a lot of color that you often don't see in Beatles documentaries because it's mainly this is may, maybe one of the things about not having any of the actual Beatles contributing as a talking head it is that it just leaves a bit more room for this kind of color to be added through you know use of other footage that yeah. kind of thing I, I guess that's it isn't it I think the the expectation would be that for any film like this the story should be told from the Beatles' point of view. Mm-hmm. And we always, you know, we, we've said before that the the band, the group have always been quite adamant that uh, they're the only ones that know their story and anyone else trying to, to sort of perpetuate that themselves isn't authentic. But that doesn't mean that there isn't value in the other side of that story. Yeah. You know, like hearing those smaller tales from those who are there on the other side of things. Yeah, it's definitely. quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think and you know the, the 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 unauthorized biography is often a lot more revealing than the autobiography. You know? Yes, I, I guess the argument is, can it be trusted? Uh, right. But in this yeah. case, I think you know w- what we're seeing is is footage from the time. It's not you know fabricated after after the event. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was quite surprised that the films seemed to present quite a negative, I think, depiction of Paul, particularly when it came to the latter part of the Beatles' career. Yeah. And I think I think the film quite squarely places the blame for the band spitting up on Paul. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few sort of uh, things that the film says outright that I just sort of, I guess, questioned, took issue with. Um, at one point, the film says that when Ringo walked out, it was because of Paul's unrelenting perfectionism. Yeah. Is that right? I, I haven't heard that before. I hadn't heard that that was why Ringo walked out when he did. Well, I he, think he tells a story that it's that he didn't feel like he was contributing uh, anything of value and that the other three were sort of in it against him. And then he tells that story, doesn't he, where he goes around to George's house and George is like, I thought it was you three. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so I, th- I think when he walked out in the White Album sessions, it was specifically because Paul trying to get him to drum back in the USSR like exactly how he wanted it. Right. And he wasn't quite getting it. So the studio version of back in the USSR, Paul is playing the drums and Dear Prudence as well, I think. So those are the two recorded while Ringo wasn't there. So, yes, I think that was probably it Fair at enough. the time. Uh, but I think that whole I thought it was you 3 anecdote is from the anthology, and he also tells it in George Harrison living in the material world, yes. I think. But So I think in those documentaries, he's not particularly bothered about saying Paul was really getting on my nerves. Yeah, yeah and that makes yeah. sense, yeah. As Ringo is, you know... Uh, always the amiable one. Yeah. So you can understand that he wouldn't want to do that. But, um, but that, I think even before that section, uh, when the film touches on Magical Mystery Tour, 
which he does in a really harsh way, by the way. I don't yeah. know if you noticed this. So it, it covers Brian's death. Uh, there's a there's a line in there about how um, Brian had a complicated private life, and it says it says something like, um, "Oh, I, know. I made a note of this: homosexuality not yet being an open matter." <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, is it? Yeah. In, in the tone in which he says it, it yeah. implies it's like. Oh, you know, we we hadn't started to tolerate homosexuality yes, exactly. as I suppose we have to it's now. now. Like, yeah. it seems to be where he's. Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's not what Malcolm McDowell thinks, but like no, but the way it was written, seemed yeah, that way, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but then it says um, there's a there's a really like quite a bold statement made, and then the the segue is non-existent into Magical Mystery Tour, right? So um, he says, had Brian lived, they might not have listened to him anyway. <laughs> and then it immediately goes into roll up. <laughs> it's like, hang on a minute, that's quite, a, that's quite a, quite a big claim to, to skip over. Yeah. But anyway, so they go into Magical Mystery Tour, and um, the film presents that whole endeavour as being uh, a failure. Right. Which we you know, obviously, we, we've we've covered Magical Mystery Tour in great depth, the, yeah, the whole yeah. film and its reception, etc. Um, but it does, the film does make pains to say that it's mostly Paul's vision, Paul's project. Yep. Um, it says something along the lines of the, the idea was to get in a bus, uh, to drive around and see what happens. Unfortunately, nothing did. Yeah. I think it says something like that. And it, and that's the first instance I got where like, you're talking about a, a failure in the band's career and you have, uh, again, squarely placed that with Paul and his vision. Yeah. And it might be true, might be accurate, but I think from that point on, the the film starts teasing a little bit more uh, of a, a a negative role that Paul plays in certain situations. So, yeah. for example, when they talk about Alan Klein coming in to save the day, I think it says like, uh, you know, when the uh, Apple Corps started losing money, became a real business concern, uh, Alan Klein came along to help. Uh, the only dissenting voice in uh, that was Paul, who wanted to bring his own in-laws in. Yes. You know, yeah. and it's just the like, sort of, I don't know, like sort of undermining, I think, almost like digging comments that kind of uh, undermine Paul's perfectly reasonable uh, rationale for, for you know, taking his own stand in certain ways. Yeah. But yeah, and in that case, and then obviously that comes right through to the end where it is very much stated that... Ringo and John and George all flirted with leaving the band and Paul always pulled them back in but now it is Paul's turn his solo album came out and he confirmed that the band has split up yeah. and it's just presented I guess as part of this narrative of him being a bit controlling a bit perfectionist and a bit uh, difficult to work with mm. and then he ultimately made the choice to split the band up which we now know isn't the case yeah yeah, so I'm not sure how whether it was known at all at that point that John had actually left them in September '69. Yeah, but you know, but it was you know, oh, don't tell anyone because uh, you know we're trying to we're trying to like Alan Klein was sort of trying to trying to do do them a new record deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't tell anyone the brand split up. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it may have been that at that point that was what was thoughts you know yeah that, like the actual prevailing wisdom was that paul was the one who had split it. and actually i mean that kind of persisted for quite a few years just because he was the first one to announce it i suppose yeah exactly you know? that yeah and I, and I think that's you know we talked before but i think that's probably led to uh what seems to be a big chip on paul's shoulder that he then bears for a good 20 years after yeah 
uh, if not longer. There's also that bit in, in the film where the narration talks about Paul being controlling in the Let It Be sessions, and it shows a picture of him pointing. Uh, and the implication, I think, is, look, here is Paul giving orders to everyone around him. Yeah. But I feel like we have more context for those sessions now, particularly yeah. to get back. And he's just singing. Yeah. Right? yeah, he's yeah, just yeah, got his, yeah. I feel like his, what he's actually pointing at, if anything, is the harmonies that he's imagining in his head as he's singing along to the songs. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, he might even be sort of air drumming with his fingers or, yeah. some, or something like that. But it is obviously, yeah, he's been uh, like caught halfway through. Yeah, and the, 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 there's another picture where he sort of appears to be frowning in the, or the others appear to be frowning at him in the right. studio or something like that. So, yeah, that, that is the narrative it's, it, it's going with for sure. And yeah, like maybe this is one of the things that... That led to that public perception. By the way, it's not, it's not an entirely unfair public perception. No, I don't like, think like so it's very, uh, Like, you know, n- known to be fairly perfectionist and n- it is known that that sort of got the other's backs up at times. Yeah. But it, it's more just that, you know, e- even up until two years ago when uh, Get Back came out, you know, we kind of all thought that, it, you know, it, Paul was the one who was pissing everyone off in the studio, you know, and, and now we know it's, you know, it's it's a lot more. I think, you know, I think there's definitely a question of, you know, I think we can look at this film released in 1982 and think, oh, that was released at a time when we didn't know better. Yeah. And so it's pushing this narrative. But the other way of looking at it is that was released in 1982 before a time when there's been a clear move to sanitize a lot of uh, uh the, the drama and the you know uh, the the story around like any sort of ill feeling that any of the band members had to each other so actually which is correct i think you could easily argue that actually that it, that might be a more accurate view than what we now know rather than it's ill-informed yeah definitely and i think also there's there's some merit in the idea that actually the more documentaries we watch the more you realize that they aren't facts or alternative views of the same facts. They are just sort of all of them individual stepping stones to your greater understanding of this entire thing. Mm. Everyone's understanding is slightly different. It, it, our knowledge of these things, it's not even knowledge, our opinions of these things are products of the of the information we've consumed about them, which will have various biases and various... Uh, tones even that, that even we will interpret differently and actually the, the idea of documentary uh, this is quite a sort of straight ahead factual documentary but like as we've discussed there are bits in which it's slightly skewed uh, the narration certainly does a lot of that but a documentary is not supposed to be necessarily just a laying out of the facts mm. and certainly not you know a, 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 like a film documentary in particular, I think, as I think we may have said on another episode, you know, if that's what you're looking for, then just read the Wikipedia page. Yeah. If you want something presented for for viewing, it is going to have a slant of some kind, mm. and it, it, and you don't you don't need to say, well, that slant was incorrect, or that slant was correct because it fits the way you you feel about it. It's more just that everything you watch contributes to the overall way that you think and feel about this yeah. thing. So I think we've covered pretty much everything that the uh, the film has to offer as a whole, but it, I think it would be worth just going through uh, and picking out a few other highlights. There's some brilliant moments in the film which I think will stay with me forever, uh, one of which is 
when the uh, film starts talking about how John Lennon uh, in Revolver has two songs that are heavily influenced by his sudden interest in drugs yep. and then proceeds to play Tomorrow Never Knows almost entirely in full. Yeah. And well, it chooses to represent visually <laughs> while that song is playing to tie in with this sort of drug related nature is just waving the camera around the revolver <laughs> album cover yeah. just up and down like really close camera just all the way up all the way down and then waving all around and stuff yeah. for almost for almost a good solid two minutes it's, <laughs> it's brilliant but also it does do the trick like if you're not you know it's one of those things where if you're not really focused you're not really concentrating on what the film is doing You'd be like, yeah, this is this is the kind of surreal imagery I think works with this song. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the you know it's a it's a very cheap effect. That the film does. <laughs> Do you have any moments in the film that you uh, you want to share? Well, I think there there are some. Um, so I mentioned before about some talking heads who you don't you don't see a lot, um, and uh, you know Alan Williams, Bob Wooler, um, uh, Tony Sheridan, uh, who, yes. you, who you don't see. Tony Sheridan, who sort of in 1982 looks amazing. Like, so he, he was a bit older than the Beatles, so he would have been in his sort of mid 40s or or something like that, or perhaps even 50 at the time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's sort, sort of long white hair and sunglasses and things, you know. And so it's you know it's interesting to hear from him. You also get like sort of Hurst Fucker from uh, from Hamburg, you know, sort of there. One of the sort of like tough guys, or you know, sort of gangsters who was like a bouncer around, around the nightclubs, who was just a, a sort of fixer for them and stuff, you know. So you know, and he sort of he he, he just talks about this scenario of like, oh yeah, I was if uh, the Beatles had any problems with sex workers, then I, I was the one who would who would clear it up. And you think this is just a scenario you seem to have made up entirely. <laughs> Tony went to him and said, listen, but if you need some protection here and if, you, if you're in trouble with some girls who are prostitutes and uh, maybe uh, you don't know that they are prostitutes and you get involved with them and the pimps find it out that you can, you can have a lot of trouble. Uh, talk to Horsa Bauer and he takes care about you and then it came that I was more or less there yeah like bodyguard more or less yeah I don't think for all the documentaries you've watched I don't think I've ever heard a single anecdote about someone having to clear up an issue with sex workers that were no, no. in the band. And, and to be clear, he isn't saying this happened. He's saying, yes. theoret- I, I was brought on board, so if this did happen, I would I would fix it for them. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds to me like that is a self-appointed job. Yeah, entirely. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and he seems he seems like sort of quite up to the task, so, you know, <laughs> good, good for him, you know. You mentioned him being one of the tough guys there as well. I One of the other bits that I really liked obviously talking about a sad subject but when we talk about Stu Sutcliffe's death in the film uh, the film makes the association which we've touched on before in previous episodes the film makes the association that it is a direct result of him being beaten up but the way that Malcolm McDowell delivers that was Sue Sutcliffe was set upon by a gang of toughs Toughs. which I've (laughs) I've I've never heard a tough guy (laughs) been referred to as a tough yeah 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 before uh, other than in like just william yeah or something like that you know <laughs> yes it, exactly it, it's very much that kind of yeah. sort of Enid Blyton yes. sort of era yeah. language you know yeah. that kind of thing no 
there's also I think with the with the footage of uh, the girls at the concerts there is one girl in particular so like if you've seen Beatles documentaries you will have seen the clip I'm talking about um I will I will find it and I will put a link uh in the episode description because it will be impossible to describe but it is uh, it's a blonde girl she seems to be on her own and she is completely fixated on the stage and she is so incredibly excited that you can see she is keeping her screams in and then all of a sudden just has to let one out yeah and and then she you can see she kind of composes herself a bit afterwards you know it, as if she was sort of uh, uh, aware of the need for an outlet yeah uh, and and just oh, i have to do this i have to get it out you know and but this is just too much it's too much for me it's it, like i i've always loved the footage of the screaming girls uh like w- one day we'll do an episode on uh ron howard's eight days a week yes. which actually I, I think really treated uh that fandom with a, with a respect it hadn't really been accorded before yeah and that's got that's got some great footage of that in it but that really uh it, it really struck me that the the focus on that girl which it does for sort of 10 seconds or so uh it just really sort of encapsulates that era in, in a really good way yeah you're totally right the, the other bit uh similar to that that stood out for me was uh there is a a gig that the band are performing and the audience are told to stay in their seats mm. um because the band won't play yeah um and then there is footage of a couple of girls sitting down, obviously very excited, but like having to contain themselves and restrict themselves to their seats. And f- you can see them physically fighting the urge to jump up to their feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're sort of like bouncing up and down in their seat a little bit, like trying to, you know, they, they desperately want to just get up on their feet, but they they know they can't. So it's just, it's really interesting seeing that sort of conflict within them as they're <laughs> basting their own excitement. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I uh, found a little bit odd and I think it's to be expected for a documentary like this released at a time like this. But the the info cards that come up at the end of the film that says Paul McCartney went on to achieve great success in Wings. Uh, Ringo, however, pursued a career in acting in Hollywood. <laughs> Does it say however? No, it doesn't. No, oh, I added oh, that. Oh, but, but I feel like I feel like the uh, implication. Right. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, because there's a difference between achieving success and pursuing. Uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I like George's one. George was like, he continued to combine his musical and spiritual interests whilst maintaining consistent degree of privacy or something like that's that. Right, like, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's like, I, I don't think you really touched upon that before, but what you're basically saying is he didn't want to be bothered by anyone, <laughs> which is, which is perfectly in keeping with what I heard yeah, about yeah, George. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously John's is, um, talks at length about what he did post Beatles only for it to be like and and then he was assassinated which feels like it doesn't do that justice that, that's the only yeah. mention uh, of that something that would have happened two years previously uh, and, yeah. for it to, and for it to just be that sentence feels like oh that's quite a big bombshell to, to end the film on yeah so I suppose uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting the way it treated that as well uh, so the, the anthology doesn't mention John's death at all, I think, because it only covers the period when they were together. Mm. And uh, this, I suppose, only mentions it because it was two years ago. Yeah. And th- they will have been quite aware that the main reason they were in the public consciousness and able to get a documentary about the Beatles released was because of John's death and that because that had kicked off a uh, sort of renewed interest in the Beatles so I suppose it was something that they had to 
that they had to make mention of. But at the same time, it would have been uh, out of place to focus on it or talk about how it happened or, I, or whatever. Yeah. You know. I, I, I agree. I, I just think that in hindsight, the film already ended quite well. Um, yeah. I think it brought about an end to the story it was telling quite yeah. well. With, and I, it, it kind of feels to me like the only reason it has those info cards is because that is the thing that documentaries do, yeah. as opposed to there really being a need for them. Yeah. But but just you know to 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 cover that ending is you know they the, the film talks about the band splitting up. Uh, it does that to the soundtrack of "I'm So Tired," <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is. Uh, an interesting use of that song the implication there presumably being I'm so tired of you <laughs> and you and you <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we we kind of play out on Let It Be and uh, and then the credits roll over Blackbird yeah which are you know lovely songs to end on they're you know sort of sentimental songs that that, that work in the context of bands splitting up but actually I think there's a there's a really lovely line that it just feels like should have been the last line of the film without those sort of cards coming up at the end where Malcolm McDowell says the Beatles were in the end a phenomenon of the 60s the 70s and beyond were only to feel their influence mm. which I thought was a really nice way of looking at it you know a phenomenon yeah. that's that's defined by that particular time which is the only thing that the film has been focused on and then what a nice neat way of summing up that they left behind a very large legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And it just seemed like a really nice note to end on. Uh, and talking of nice notes to end on, uh, I feel like we can do that line justice by ending on it now. So we'll end things there. But however, as always, we would love to hear from you. If you've seen this film, um, what does it mean to you? Is it as important to you as uh, the anthology was? I know it, it holds uh, a place of high regard for lots of Beatles fans. We would love you to get in touch with us and tell us your thoughts about the film. Is there anything that we've missed that we should have discussed that you have strong feelings about? Do you have any better chicken puns for us? By all means, get in touch with us about any or all of these things. You can reach us on all of the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. Uh, you can also leave us a five star rating or a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we will see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. 
Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.